I was out, um, you know, I do my typical morning run. I was out this morning, and because of the time, I mean, it was, you know, it was pretty dark, and I waited for a little bit. It's beautiful when the sun, where I live, you know, and most, many of you have been there before. Eventually, you will come by, um, and the sun is coming over the hills there. It's really nice, and you have thoughts about God, and even preparing for this message, uh, even then, praying that the Lord would use it. As we making our way through um, Isaiah 40 to 48, and right now just verses 1 through 5, and now just verse 5, really, just to let you know what's ahead, um, uh, this morning, verse 5, a beautiful text that tells us the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken, amen, he has spoken. Um, but then Thursday, I'm on a long trip on the East Coast, and pray for me. I mentioned it. I always, I want. I was talking with students recently about, you know, when I go somewhere, I'm doing something. I, I, I mention it to as many people as possible because I want people praying for me. I leave Thursday, and I'm gone the 21st until the 30th, ministering in Maryland, then Virginia, then North Carolina, then South Carolina. Uh, the good thing about it on these occasions now that we're almost empty nesters, um, Joanna gets to go with me, so that's good, uh, not traveling alone this time, but a number of messages and kind of meeting with leadership um, in those four states, uh, but we come back the 30th, uh, we'll fly back and I'll be back to, to teach on the 31st, but in between, next Sunday, uh, Mark Zakevich is going to be here. Um, to teach. All right, I already talked with Mark about it. Right now, he is actually preaching in a little bit in Glasgow. No, he's in Belfast right now. He's been there with the Billy Graham Crusades um, and doing preaching in that area. So he'll come back, preach the 24th. Um, I'm sure you'll be blessed by that. Then I'll be back the 31st. But for now, we need to finish this section of Isaiah. And I'm really excited about it, Um, the whole study. And I've said this before, I do want to mention that. That's another thing, 90 days to the Bible. You say, well, we started on September the 6th. Um, What about now? Dive in right now. Um, We're in the Psalms now. Uh, Last night I read, uh, it would have been Psalm 26 to 45. Great. Um, And I think today is going to be like 27 to 65, I think it is. Um, And I just want to encourage you to participate. A number of people are participating in it. You say, well, it's too late. It's never too late to take in large doses of the Word of God. Do you agree with that? And so I know some of you already have maybe a plan, and that's wonderful. But if you'd like to participate in it, I advise people two apps. You can use Bible Box and just put reading plan and put a date on it. Or you can go to YouVersion. Or you, I have a PDF that I can send you if you'd like, and you can just follow that. So um, it'd be hard, actually, with um, Bible Box because you'd have to put it would try to tell you, okay, we'll start over and you're trying to read the Bible in 90 days, which won't be 90 days, because today is day 42. Yeah, today will be day 42. But I would encourage you to do it. I enjoy it. 
uh, I was preaching at uh, the Masters University Seminary. Um, I'm sorry, Masters University um, on Monday in their chapel. And I mentioned about just reading the word of God, why it's necessary. My theme was delighting in God. And this is one way that we delight in him. And why do I read large portions of the Bible? And initially people, oh, you read large portions of the Bible um, and they see it as something that is perhaps extraordinarily spiritual. And it isn't. And my word to them was I read large portions of the Bible because I'm a sinner. Um, That's why (laughs) it it helps me. And um, it helps me focus. It helps me worship. Uh, it helps me when I get large portions in. This is amazing how this flows, the consistent themes that you see time and time and time again. So um, it's good for the soul. I know we are all agree with that, right? And uh, if you're not going to read it in that sort of uh, volume, you must be consistent in reading it. Um, the scripture is clear. How can a young man keep his way pure? He keeps it according to what? His word. His word, and you say, well, I'm not young anymore. Uh, Well, but you're still a sinner. (laughs) Can we agree with that? Amen. So, okay, we're on the same page here. That's good. Now, we're going to look to God's word. Pray with me. Lord, Lord, thank you for your goodness, um, your mercies, which are new every day. And I pray that in the moments ahead, you would encourage all of our hearts as we look to your word we can be encouraged by it as it encouraged so many in times past. Um, Give me grace in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, let me read for you, if you will. Let me read for you just one through five. Remind ourselves of the text. And it says, Isaiah 40, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A great word for us. Uh, The importance of this message. And I suppose you could obviously say that with any message. I don't care where you are. Um, As Bill was telling us last week that in fact we should be people of honesty. And and I think you heard it. I'm not sure. I should, should have counted it. How many times he said tell the truth. Uh, and it's necessary that we do just that. We be people of honesty. And you say, well, what's the importance of that message? And uh, when you hear Mark teach next week, there's importance to that message. And when I teach again and when Bill comes back, there's an importance to that message. And what you hear in the service um, later this morning, that's an important message. Every time we open the word of God, that's an important message, isn't it? We all agree with that. Um, but there are times when we focus on something that we think is very stri- central, and I think this is something that is central. This is a thought, a theology that comes from this message that's not only central to redemptive history, because redemptive history is this foundation, really, to our very existence. Um, 
When we understand redemptive history, it gives us the purpose behind God's revelation, even of himself. And here it is talking about a glory that is going to be revealed. And this is a message that in part tells us why God created, why there was divine intervention throughout history, really, why there is a purpose in life, why there was an incarnation, and why there is one God And I would say this, one God that is worthy of praise in unmitigated obedience. He is our God. And this message really reaffirms something. It reaffirms that God has an infinite love for each of you that know him as your Savior. An infinite love. And I say that because the promise to reveal his glory is redemptive. And the plan of redemption is infinite. That is, since God is outside of time and he does not develop in his thinking, his love has always been set on you. That's a great truth that we should take to heart. And I've said this to you before, but I say it again because certain things are worthy of repeating. It's just like when I was reading the Psalms, um, you know, so two days ago, started in Psalm 1, I went 1 to 25 and then 26 to 45 and whatever, forget the, the reading for today. I saw these themes again and again and again and again. I cry out, Lord, help me. I trust you, Lord. You are my bulwark, Lord. You are my strength, Lord, again and again and again. And why do we need to hear certain things again? Because we tend to do what? Forget. We need to have them reaffirmed. And I reaffirm to you this great love that he has for you that is unchanging. Because, of course, nothing changes in God. We experience his love in time, but he has always loved us and always will love us. That is, those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. Redemption takes place in time. In the mind of God, redemption is already settled. That's what we need to understand and grapple with, that great sense of a lofty theology that tells us about God and who he is in his very nature. So even when we say, and I've said this to you before, when God decided that he would save is really not a true statement. Because then the moment we say when God decided to say, save, we have by implication said what? There was a point in time when he had not decided to save. But is that true? No, it's not true. It has always been true in the mind of God that he would save. But now this infinite being now interfacing with time, he steps into eternity in the incarnation. And now this plan begins to unfold and we see his infinite desire and will unfold for us in life. And that I've always loved you before you were born, before there was a star, before there was a universe. I have always loved you. That was his intention And it is subtle. And so this text reminds us again of truths like that. Now we need to review it uh, a bit and where we've been. And let me review some things for you. Straightforward. We saw in verse 1, there is the command of comfort. Here he says, comfort or comfort my people. And we notice that this is a shift in Isaiah from 1 to 39. God's dealing with the nations. There is judgment. Uh, There is a sense of sin. Uh, There is a picture of the Assyrians who are the enemy of the people of God. But now it changes. We know what has happened. The people are captive in Babylon. And he calls out now that they should be comforted. Where in the past, there is an emphasis on they should be condemned. They are unrighteous. They have forfeited 
uh, their right to be the people of God, but yet God is not forfeited because God does not forfeit his promises. And then we saw the message of comfort. And what is the message in verse 2? He says, first, you need to speak kindly to Jerusalem, whereas before uh, there were harsh words to be spoken to her. She had failed. Call out to her. Her warfare is ended. Uh, Her iniquity has been removed. Why? Because of the grace of God. She has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And how should we understand that double for all her sins is not some might say, well, it's a double payment. God paid them double for their sins. Or it means it's a double payment and that, okay, they were captive and then they had warfare. That's the double payment. So Jerusalem is destroyed and then they were led away. That's the double payment. Or really, is this an idiom that communicates double payment for all their sins? You have paid sufficiently for your treachery. I've sent you away, and I promised that you would come back. So that's the double for all the sins. It's not a literal sense. You paid in this way, and you paid in this way. He is saying, or twice, if you will, he's saying, your exile is sufficient. That's what he's communicating here. But it's over with. And why is it over? Because God is a gracious God. And we saw, now we move to verses Three and five, as we noted even several weeks ago, there was a a voice of comfort. There was a message of a coming glory. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain be made low. The rough ground become a plain, the rugged terrain a broad valley. So we understand, how do we understand this language? How do we understand this language of broad valleys? And remember singing it even from Handel's Messiah, if you will. What does this mean? Um, And as we understood this several weeks ago, what he's communicating is that make a highway for God. This is not Israel so much coming back from exile. It is God that is going to come to his people. And we noticed that there was some cultural relevance to this because there is evidence that in the Babylonians, they had a certain procedure or we can say it was a part of their culture. There was a roadway and they would have a festival where their gods would come, at least the images of their gods would come, and they would come down this road in great festivals saying, here are our deliverers. But God is saying, no, there is a spiritual road that is going to come. And on that road, Yahweh will come, not the false gods of Babylon and not any other god of the lands that you would laud them and praise them and give them glory. Yahweh is coming. And then some would say, no, it's a literal sense that he's just going to make things right literally in the land. Topography is going to be changed. That's not the point. It is not that. Because we know that the application of these verses in 3 and 4, we find in the New Testament. Uh, John the Baptist was the one that was saying what? Make Make straight the way of the Lord. And so, yes, the valleys be made low, the mountains, the valleys be lifted up, that is, the mountains low, the rough ground, a plain, the rugged terrain, a broad valley. It's all to say, God is worthy of your presence. And he is going to come to you. It is not so much they coming back to the land, which is true. That is a part of the fulfillment. But it is Yahweh will come to you. 
And that's what's beautiful about it. Even when we think about our Christian experience, it is God coming to us, is it not? That is, when you think about um, your Christian experience, when I say Christian experience, your testimony, all of us were on a road that was moving away from God, were we not? But it took the Lord coming to us to save us. All of us were like sheep that were, that were what? They were gone astray. And so God comes to us. So we come to this message of a coming glory. Now, there's a way that we should look at it. Uh, there's six questions that were already answered from the previous text. The voice is calling. And it's just the idea that it's any voice that would cry out, cry out to the people of God that God's promises will be true. I talked about the cultural relevance God is saying, no, Yahweh is coming. These deities that would have gone down this road and there would have been festivals for them, they are not true. They're indeed false. And why must the way be clear? Because he's worthy of it. Just as any royal person would come and you would clear a way for them, so Yahweh is worthy of that, is he not? We see it, and I've mentioned to you before, even if the President of the United States comes to visit Grace Community Church, what is going to happen to Roscoe Boulevard? You're going to clear the way for Roscoe Boulevard, are you not? And so Yahweh is worthy that his way be cleared and that he be recognized. And what will often happen when the motorcade is going by, and if you find out if it's coming by, people will be on the sides of the roads, right? And they're waving, hoping that they'll look. And we do this sort of thing when a a sports team wins a championship. Um, They win the championship and they come and people are are lauding them and recognizing them in one sense, giving them glory. And this is a statement that says only Yahweh is worthy of this. What's the application in, in Isaiah? And it's just that only God, Yahweh, is worthy to be lauded. Only his glory should be recognized. What's the New Testament application? John the Baptist would be that voice in the New Testament, and he would proclaim. And now for us, we are those voices that say to the world, believe our God. What's the life application? I just think simply, it is that we have a mission to accomplish. Then this leads us to now more the message of a coming glory. What's the message of this coming glory? There are four questions that we want to answer from verse 5. And here they are. What is the glory of God? We need to understand that. You remember some weeks ago, we looked at all the important vocabulary in Isaiah 40 to 48. And with that vocabulary are theological themes that should bring comfort to our heart. And one thing is glory. This is the first occurrence here in Isaiah 40 to 48. So we need to understand what is the glory of God. Then we need to answer, when will it be revealed? Um, How do we know it will occur? And then the fourth question we'll answer this morning is, what is the relevance even for today? What is the relevance even for today? Now, first, let's answer this first question. What is the glory of God? When we think about the Westminster Catechism, and it tells us this, what is the purpose of man? What is man's chief purpose? Why does he exist? Why is he here? Why are you here even today? It is to do what? To glorify God and to do what? Enjoy him forever. So when we think about the glory of God, we can think this is so important for us because this is the purpose of my life to bring him glory, to laud him, to live for him. The word for glory is important in the book of Isaiah. Just consider this. The words for glory 
They occur 37 times, 37 times. 20 occurrences, if you were to look at glory, our form of glory, in chapters 1 to 39, you'll find it 20 times, glory. In chapters 40 to 66, you'll find it 16 times, I'm sorry, 17 times, glory, glorify, to my glory. And then, if you note with me, in chapter 66, as Isaiah ends, we see it there even five times. In Isaiah 66. Look at me at Isaiah 66. So the book comes to an end. All of God's promises are fulfilled. And notice it says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you can build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. So he makes this declaration, and he says, I am a God that is so expansive, I cannot be contained anywhere. Notice the uses of the word. Verse 5, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word, you brothers who hate you, who exclude you from my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but they will be put to shame. So here it was in a mocking sense, but yet glorified because they understood that the whole purpose in life is to glorify God. Notice, if you will, it comes up again. Verse 12, for this says the Lord, behold, I extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like a flowing stream. So now the the nations have some glory, but you have to recognize that they only have a glory because God has given it to them. All that you have in life is only because the Lord has given it to you. Do you agree with that? All that you have is by the grace of God. Now, one example, let me pull from this thought, is the nations having a glory. They do, and we'll see that throughout Isaiah. Any success that they've had, any way in which they're used, is only because it's a part of God's design. There's one man who got himself in trouble by not realizing that all that he had was from God. All of his glory was from God. And who is that man? Nebuchadnezzar. Because what did he do? He stood on his rooftop and he says, what? Look at all my glory, which my hands have made. And we know how that story ends. And in one sense, what we see throughout Isaiah 40 to 48 is God saying to the nations, who are you? Any success that you have, it is only because I've given this to you. And then, and this is why he says, I would not share my glory. Look at verse 18. For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all the nations and tongues and they will come and see my what? They will see my glory. Notice verse 19. It comes up here again, twice in verse 19. I will set a sign among them and will send survivors to, from them to the nations, Tarshish and Put and Lud and Meshach, Tubal and Javan, to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they will declare my glory among the nations." So we see this expansive reach of God that is saying, I want all people to see of my glory. And notice how he says here, they've not seen my fame. God wants his fame to be known to every person. And this again, and I'll say this later on, brings us to the very practical 
sense of this theology. It reminds us of our purpose. Why are we here? God wants his fame to be known. He is the only God that is worthy of our attention. Will you participate in glorifying God? So we see glory in Isaiah. It is important. And if you were to just look at maybe to this week, look at Isaiah 40 to 48 and see how many times you see this sense of glory. I will not share my glory with another to the glory of my name throughout. But what about glory defined? We need to define it. Well, there's several ways for us to consider it. First, it is manifest in his special presence. God's glory is manifest in his special presence. Say, for instance, when we see God's glory in the cloud, uh, when God is leading Israel out of Egypt, he manifests his glory in a cloud. And we also saw his glory in what? In the fire. That was a manifestation of his glory. We also see God's glory in his delivering acts. In the book of Exodus, we saw God's glory because he would do what? Defeat the Egyptians, and that was him glorifying himself, showing his glory. So we see it even in the Exodus. That's an example of the glory of God. His glory shone above the false gods of the Exodus or of Egypt. And that's why you have ten plagues that in one sense saying to each of these false deities, you are deficient. You see the glory of God in creation, do you not? Because we look into the heavens, and what does the psalmist tell us? The heavens declare what? The glory of God. It's his handiwork. It's his precision. We see the glory of God in this way. He is recognized. He is honored. Because we do all things to the glory of God. It's when we see in Scripture according to his name. So we think about glory, special presence, cloud, Fire, smoke, thunder, a voice even. When we think about the glory of God, it's it's manifest in his delivering acts. We saw his glory. Uh, We see it in creation. We see it even in mankind. Because we are fearfully and wonderfully made. In one sense, we're to reflect his glory. And we see it when we do all things for his Glory. We see it on many occasions throughout Scripture. Isaiah saw his glory in Isaiah 6 when he is in the temple and the train of the temple is, uh, is, feel, is, the train is feeling the temple. And then he recognizes that he is a man of unclean lips and amongst the people of unclean lips. It is his glory. A.W. Pink said this of his glory. He says, The name, or he's referring to his glory, is the collection of his attributes. Because remember when I introduced Isaiah 40 to 48, I was saying that we would look at the idea of glory, and glory is not an attribute. It is how we think about God and the sum of his attributes. One verse or text that helped me think about this many years ago, because I was wondering myself, then what is the glory of God? Look with me to the book of Exodus. Look at Exodus if you will, 33. And you may know, okay, what I'm thinking at this moment, but in Exodus 33, in verse 12, then Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have let, not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. 
Verse 13. Now, therefore, I pray, if I found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I might know you so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider that this nation, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. Well, because his presence did go, remember, it was in the cloud and it was in the what? In the fire. Then notice verse 18. Then Moses said, I pray, show me your what? Your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show compassion on whom I will show compassion. And he says, but you can't see my face and live. Then notice what it says in verse 22. And it will come about while my glory is passing by that I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And we know what happens. The Lord does pass by and he sees what? God makes a statement of who he is. That was his glory. Compassion, righteousness. He is a God that visits sin on those that hold to it. He is a God that also forgives. This is his glory being manifest. So when we think about seeing the glory of God, it is the the idea that it's his righteousness and his goodness. It's his compassion. It's his redemptive hand. It's his mercy. All of these things are the glory of God. Some have said that it's simply the sign of his presence and power. That is true as well, because God would manifest his glory and help the people of God. Mayhew and MacArthur say this in Bible doctrine, God's glory refers to the consummate beauty of the totality of his perfections. It is his supreme significance and splendor, God's glory. And this is why we do all things to the glory of God. This is our calling. This is why we should live our life the way that we should Unto the glory of God. Notice Psalm 24. Turn there with me if you will. Psalm 24. Psalm 24. And we see a theme here. There's a king that is coming. And that king is going to enter into Jerusalem. But what is this king like? Verse 3. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob, Selah. Lift up your head, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, mighty and strong. The Lord mighty in battle, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And what are the statements here? The king of glory, he says he's strong, he's mighty, he's a warrior. And then he says it again in verse 10, he is a warrior because he says he is the Lord of hosts, or he is the Lord of armies. He is the king of glory. And now when a king came in, particularly in certain cultures and even today, they manifest a certain degree of royalty, do they not? Uh, When they come in, people attend to them. 
They come with pomp and circumstance, if you will. They come with splendor and they display their royalty. I'm not sure how many of you are into like the royal family. Um, I didn't know it was so much of a fad. I'm not really into getting up at three in the morning to watch someone get married that I don't know. I mean, if it's someone I know, I might. Like if they're Zooming their wedding from the other part of the world and I know them, hey, I'll, I'll for sure, I'll watch it. People I don't know, I'm really not into that. And I, and I see, I won't say, but I see people. I mean, they, they dress up, they pretend they're there, they have tea. <laughs> they put, no, I, you know you've seen it. You're like, how do they know? <laughs> and they see this royalty, the pomp and circumstance. And when they come in, everyone rises, do they not? Because they realize in this moment, it is their moment. Think about the king of glory. His pomp and circumstance, all of his splendor and his majesty. And God is saying through Isaiah, rise and pay attention to him. Laud him, glorify him. He is the only one that is worthy. Do you agree with me? Yeah. But see, the royalty of today, they have limitations. Just like God is saying to the nations, you have limitations. Our God, no limitations whatsoever. I mean, the the crown jewels are quite nice. But they still have a limitation. You You can put a price tag on the crown jewels. There's no price tag on the glory of our God. Amen. So this is the glory of God. Um, And this is why he says, I will not share my glory with another because no one else is worthy of me. This is why he makes this statement. Because all the glory they have, it's only because of my gracious hand. And even when I gave the Assyrians glory, I gave them glory so that they would rise up and they would punish my people for a period of time. And then I would free them because I would give glory to the Babylonians and they would rise up and they would punish the Assyrians for punishing my people. And then at some point in time, the Babylonians, I would say that is enough of your glory. I take it from you and I'll give it to Cyrus. And they will rise up and they will punish you. I give my glory to whom I wish. And this is why when any person takes on the spirit of Nebuchadnezzar and you stand on your rooftop and say, look at all the glory which my hands have made, it is wrong. Because only God is worthy to be glorified. Only he is the king of glory. So glory, uh, it manifests itself physically at times. We see its splendor. Glory, it's according to his name. Glory, it's his delivering acts. Glory, it's the sum of his attributes. This is his glory. And when will it be revealed? Let's answer that question. When will it be revealed? Um, number one, it, in, in the return of his people through Cyrus, it be, will be revealed in that sense because God is saying, Cyrus is my servant. I will use him to bring my people back from captivity and people will see it. The nations will know of it. 
I am faithful to my promises. So God will manifest his glory when the people of God come back from captivity. And there will be a question then, who is a God that can deliver like this? He is delivered from the Assyrians. Now he's delivered from the Babylonians. And now he has caused this king to say, go back and rebuild. He decrees it because God controls the nations and he controls every prince and every king and every leader of every nation. But then secondly, and most importantly, it's in the person of Jesus Christ. It will be revealed. Notice, if you will, chapter 40. Go back to Isaiah 40 and the person of Christ. And actually, chapter 40, verses 9 and 11, help us interpret this a bit because it says in verse 9, Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear, say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will lead his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom, and he will gently lead the nursing hues. That's so beautiful, isn't it? And think about the picture that it gives us. Not only is is this great one that will come in might, he is this one who is the Lord of hosts, but he's also a tender shepherd. He's that for us today. So it's a declaration of a coming Savior. Remember, the road is for Yahweh to come. It's not first and foremost for the people to leave. It is for him coming. In John's gospel, turn with me to the gospel of John. John chapter 1. What do we see in John 1? We know from the beginning, the Word was with God and the Word was God. We know all things came into being through Him, and nothing that has come into being has come into being except what? Through His glorious hand. There came a man sent from God whose name is John. He came as a witness or as a voice to testify about the light so that all may believe through him. And what is this light? Verse 14, familiar text, is it not? And the word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory as uh, as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18 No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And what did Christ say of himself? If you have seen me, you have seen what? The Father. So his glory is displayed. Also, if you will, um, verse 23, notice what it says here. He said, I am a voice of the one crying in the wilderness. There is the language we see in Isaiah 40. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now it is being fulfilled. The glory of the Lord is being revealed in Jesus Christ. And it's the pronouncements of Mark. It's what Luke tells us. It's what Mark tells us and Matthew tells us as well. This voice that is crying, Christ has come. His glory will be revealed. It's what we see in Hebrews chapter 1. 
in Hebrews chapter 1, it tells us that Jesus Christ is the exact representation of his glory, of his nature. So when we see Christ, we have seen the glory, and all men will behold it. Now, let's look at some examples in the Gospels. Matthew 16. Matthew 16. This glory is in connection to the glory of the Father. Matthew 16, 27, it says, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. So there is another coming that will reveal the glory of God. And then notice, if you will, look with me at Matthew 24. Matthew 24. So it's the glory of the Father, his splendor, his majesty, his power. Then in Matthew 24, verse 30, it's his great glory that will be displayed. Um, 20, yeah, 24 and 30. And it says, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And what will happen? And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So he comes in great glory. Interesting enough, in Titus, it tells us in Titus 2.13, it's the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But it is also this, it's his own glory. It's the glory of the Father. It's his great glory, but it's his own glory. Look at Matthew 25, his own glory. Matthew 25, it says here, 29 says, For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from those who do not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne because he is going to make all things right. His glory. We see this in We won't go there. John 17, his glory, which he shares with us. We even saw his glory physically in the transfiguration. Remember what happened there? They saw the glory of Christ. But here's another example of it. Now, Isaiah for sure is speaking about this glory of Christ being revealed, but it is also this. Turn with me to Ezekiel. Go with me to the book of Ezekiel. And what do we see in Ezekiel? Um, Ezekiel chapter 1. In Ezekiel 1, we see God here through the prophet describing the glory of God. We would see this in verses really 4 through 28. And we see in verse 22, Now over the heads of the living beings was also something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. And what does he hear? In verse 24, like the voice of the Almighty, sound of tumult, like the sound of an army camp. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. And it gets even more exciting, if you will. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upwards something like a glowing metal, 
that looked like fire all around it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire. And there was a radiance around him. And the appearance of the rainbow and the clouds on a raining day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. And when I saw it, what's the response to seeing the glory of God? I fell on my face and and heard a voice speaking. Response. Just like when Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord in the temple. He realized I'm a man of unclean lips amongst the people of unclean lips. And he worshiped. Whenever we see people who have actually engaged with the living God, their response is worship. This is why this nonsense that sometimes you hear about these so-called bishops and apostles and prophets and what else do they call themselves? I don't know. It doesn't matter, really. You know what I mean, right? They say that they've seen God, but their response is not this. Their response should be worship. And they worshiped. So we see this great description of the glory of God. But there's something sad that happens. And we won't go there, but note it. Ezekiel chapter 11. What happens? The glory of the Lord departs. So the glory of the Lord is in the temple. But because the people are people who are not worshiping, the glory of the Lord departs. And literally we see this manifestation of glory leaving the temple. So it leaves. How unfortunate. How unfortunate. But then there's good news. Isaiah 43. I'm sorry, Ezekiel 43. Because in Ezekiel 43, what is going to happen there? There's a return of the glory in the millennial temple. That is a great truth, a great comfort. In verse 7. It says, he said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. And the house of Israel not again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their harlotry and by the corpses of their kings when they die. Because now the glory of the Lord comes back to the temple. And then once the glory of the Lord comes back to the temple, then all nations will come and they'll be drawn to the glory of Israel. Because why? God's glory is there. Because Israel only has any glory because God is their help. Even my reading through the Psalms in these last two days, constantly the psalmist is saying what? Deliver me, deliver me, help me by your strength, by your might. And often he would say, my enemies are too strong for me. They overwhelm me. However, if you're with me, nothing matters, does it? If God is on our side, we will be triumphant. So the glory of the Lord is revealed, yes, historically in an episode when the people of God would leave Babylon and they would go back. The nations would see, look, Yahweh is a delivering God. They would see his glory. It would surely be in Jesus Christ. Here is the glory of God amongst us. Once you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He represents that perfect um, representation of God and all of his kindness and goodness and meekness and everything. 
And then we would see the glory of God now manifest in the temple. And then eventually, and we think about in our worship into the future, there is no need in the new heaven, in the new city of God. Why is there no need for light? Because what? He is the light. His radiant glory is the light. All flesh will see it together. Some saw it, and when it says all flesh, it really is saying every kind of people will see it together. And this is why into the future, uh, when it comes to our salvation, the scripture tells us from every tribe and from every tongue and from every people. I look in this room and I see different peoples represented in this room. Even right now, okay, let's a quick survey. I have a couple of minutes here. Quick survey. Who traces their people back to Europe somewhere? Okay, great. All right, how about we're going to go, we're just going to call it um, South America, Mexico. Where are your, your people from there? Any, any people from there? Okay, wonderful. Okay, this is good. All right, um, what, what are the people we have? Let's talk about Asia. Who can go back to Asia? All right, Asia represented over here. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Not Asia Minor, but <laughs> what's that? Michigan. Michigan. <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah, all the people from Michigan and Minnesota and Illinois, right? Amen. Right? All these different people. And I'm a, I'm a bit of a mixed bag myself. So, you know, my grandmother's people from right here before anyone else showed up, her people were here. And I don't know where my people came from that were um, in, you know, the continent across the Atlantic and Africa. I don't know. I know my grandmother's people. Uh, I'm true American. <laughs> true American. <laughs> true American. That's okay. Hold it, hold it down to the wokeness now. No, I'm just, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding around. I'm kidding around. If anything, that's the opposite. Me saying I'm American. How dare you say that? What else am I supposed to say? What else am I? Am I? I'm, th- I'm American. That's who I am. Yeah. And then they're ca- Canadian. Great. L- live with it. That's who they are. I don't mean it in that way. <laughs> that, that came across the wrong way. I meant like, um, be thankful. That's the Lord's desire for your life. I'm I'm trying to clean it up. I'm not sure if I can. You get my point, right? Wherever you're from, right? Be thankful. God is saying every type of people will see my glory. And this is another thing about his glory. It has no limits. And in this room, you see that it has no limits. Because then if we go beyond our ethnicity, which is in some sense unimportant, and if we say it has no limits, I will save all sorts of sinners. Some of you are down a dark, dreary road. You were truly in the miry clay, and he pulled you out. Amen? And some of you were fairly religious people and living a moral sort of life, and he pulled you out of that as well. So he saves all sorts of people and he allows all sorts of people to see his glory. Now, let's answer the third question. How will we know it will occur? Go back to Isaiah 40. How do we know it will occur? Isaiah 40, because it says in verse 5, the latter part, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. How do we know it will occur? The answer is obvious. And it's even applicable for here and now. 
The divine voice has done what? He has given an irresistible and also an irreversible promise. A promise that must be fulfilled. And if it is not fulfilled, then we can say this, no promise can be trusted. Then if we say that, then if no promise can be trusted, God himself is not worthy of glory and honor. He is not. And if God is not worthy of glory and honor, then what or who is? Maybe it is the gods of the Babylonians. Maybe it is the gods of the nations. Maybe it is the gods of our own minds. Maybe there should be another road and not Yahweh go down that road, but some other deity go down that road. It's the thought, if you will, of Paul when Paul says, well, if there's no resurrection, then we should just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And it's not so much that it wasn't a resurrection. It is this, that the resurrection was promised. It's not the technicality of the resurrection, although it is incredibly important. It's the fact that it was promised. That's his point. Since God promised it, then it must be true. And that means everything in life that he promises is, in fact, true. So then we return to this thought of being worthy. This is what these chapters are addressing as we move forward. The nations propose that the gods are worthy, but only Christ, only Yahweh is worthy of our recognition and our honor. Do you agree with that? And of course he's the only one that's worthy. Because as we will learn as we move our way through these chapters, only he created the heavens and the earth. Only he rules the nations. Only he knows the thoughts and intentions of men. Only he possesses unlimited resources. Only he can speak with prophetic, I'll call it prophetic integrity. And when I say prophetic integrity, what I mean is this. When he says it will occur, when he says it will be virgin born, he will be virgin born. When he says it will be in this city, it will be in that city. When he says at that time, it will be at that time. When he says Cyrus will allow you to go back then, it will be then. Not before and not afterwards. Every promise God has made will in fact come to fruition, will they not? Because then if not, how can we trust anything? You can't. And only, and here is the pinnacle of it all. Yes, they can't create heavens and earth. They don't know the intentions of men. They cannot rule the nations. They cannot speak with integrity prophetically. But here is the pinnacle of it all. What no one else can do, what no nation can do, what no prophet could do, it is this. No one can provide the universal sacrifice for sins. The glory will be revealed. And this is the suffering servant that comes later. This is the one who would give his back to be beaten. This is now Yahweh coming on that road to die. What deity has done that? What deity is capable of it? And see, we know this will occur as much as we know any other promise. We know that Christ will come again. Amen? We know that our salvation is secure, not because of ourselves, but because of the sufficient sacrifice of the suffering servant. We know that one day Christ will subject all nations to himself. We know that for certain. 
We know that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Lord of lords and King of kings. We know this promise as much as we know every promise. Rest in the promise that he will forgive you when you confess your sins. Rest in the promise that he will comfort you in time of need. Rest in the promise that he will never leave you or forsake you because he said it. So you see, again, these lessons, this is not just um, us looking at a book that is speaking prophetically about the future. And then we understand some of these things historically. This is for our life. Because if this not, is not true, nothing is true. And if our God is not worthy of praise and glory and honor, then what are we to do? We should be like Paul. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. But that's not the case, is it? It's not. Father, we thank you for your goodness that you show us even in these words that are before us. We bless you. Help us to live accordingly to your glory. The scripture is clear. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do it all to the glory of God. In Christ's name, amen.